Jackson Dearborn Partners is on their eighth Opportunity Zone deal in less than three years. What were some of the biggest challenges that they faced and biggest lessons learned during their first seven OZ deals? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Joining me today is Ryan Tobias. Ryan is co-founder and partner at Jackson Dearborn Partners, and he comes to us today from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Jimmy. Absolutely. Great to have you here. Uh, to start us off, why don't you tell us a little bit about Jackson Dearborn Partners? When did you guys get started? What's your, what's your main investment thesis? And a little bit more about some of your past projects, maybe. Give us a little brief history of your firm. Happy to. Um, certainly, I've gotten this pitch down, pitching uh, Opportunity Zone deals for the last few years, so um, easy breezy. Um, so, I started Jackson Dearborn Partners with uh, two other partners, Sean Lyon and, and Sean Buss, um, in 2014. We've been in the business together, um, mainly on the brokerage side, going back to the early 2000s, and started JDP to really focus on multifamily and student housing, both acquisitions and development. Uh, through that, we kind of circuitously got into the Opportunity Zone program in that we were planning a couple of student housing developments near the University of Illinois in Champaign. And when the Opportunity Zone program was announced, uh, lo and behold, a couple of uh, qualified tracks were, were right there next to campus where we had a couple of projects planned. We're typically long-term holders, and so the Opportunity Zone program sort of fit with our general business plan and thesis already. So we decided to capitalize those first couple of projects with QOZ uh, money. We raised a small fund to do that. It was $10 million in early 2018. Final regulations were still forthcoming at that point. And um, that was very successful, and we just kind of took it from there. So it's been a, a guiding principle of of our growth pattern. We do both Opportunity Zone and conventional um, multifamily development um, and a little bit of student housing still. And we've uh, now done... Uh, I think we're on our eighth Opportunity Zone project in four states. Um, and we started here in the Midwest, and we're now largely focused in Colorado and Arizona. That's great. So quite a lot of experience. You've done seven successful Opportunity Zone funds in the past, I guess, two, two and a half years or so now. Uh, but with all that experience under your belt, I'd be curious, what are some of the best practices that you've picked up on? What are some of the lessons that you've learned? You know, it, it's been a, a wide variety of best practices, and that's changed a little bit. I mean, you know, when we first got started, obviously, the final regulations weren't even out yet. We had to evolve all of our agreements as we went along. Um, but, you know, each successive deal and fund, I think we've gotten a little a little tighter, a little uh, crisper in our documentation and our process and our message to investors. Um, but honestly, it's still, uh, it's still a work in progress because we're just now getting to the point. I mean, we have our first, our first deals were, you know, just gotten to the point where they're cash flowing and there are potential distributions to be made. That just happened in the last few months and, and we've got to be among the first, uh, to do that for true ground up, uh, type deals here in the last, uh, few quarters. 
Uh, so we're still learning, but I mean, that, you know, it, it's just like any other project or any other program, I suppose. I mean, you, you got to have the right team in place, uh, and an opportunity zone program that really means your your tax counsel and and your your attorney and your CPA and and those folks who are going to be uh, very key in preparing the right documentation and making sure you're in compliance and 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 the message to investors is accurate. Um, at least as of the uh, as of the most recent writing of the rules. And tell me a little bit more about your investment thesis. Which product types are you investing in, and and which locations do you like specifically for your opportunity zone projects? Sure. So we've always done a mixture of multifamily and student housing, although we're predominantly focused on multifamily right now. Uh, we have done uh, one, two, three, four five uh, student housing projects in the Opportunity Zone, um, but again, largely focused on multifamily right now. I mean, and our thesis is essentially, you know, I mean, we're we're looking for areas and locations that we would want to do projects in regardless of the Opportunity Zone designation. Um, and, you know, those are areas where uh, maybe they're adjacent to a certain, um, a more qualified Opportunity Zone, but, you know, maybe they, uh, have really made a lot of progress. Uh, certain neighborhoods have already kind of turned the corner, perhaps over the last 10, 11 years. Um, you know, we're looking for for locations that really make a lot of sense uh, today, and um, and you know that these deals to us really need to stand on their own. Um, the, the tax benefits are are wonderful, but they're meaningless if it's not a good project. Uh, if the property doesn't succeed in hitting its returns and projections, just you know getting Reduced basis taxes and and deferral et cetera et cetera is that's only a small piece of the equation. We're doing projects in locations and, and types that we would be doing regardless of the QOZ. Right, and your current project that you're looking to develop that you're raising capital for now currently is based in Colorado Springs, and I want to talk to you about that in a few minutes. Uh, but but first, I want to look at your first seven deals that you've done what which locations have you been in for those first seven i know champagne was your first one but any other uh locations that you've been in that are interesting well we've done a number in champagne actually and and um the reason for that is just you know the qz track went down right next to campus and that's been one of those um i i'd say early uh, recipients of a lot of qz capital is that you know, from a 10,000 foot view, um, you know, an area adjacent to a university campus is looks to be somewhat of a low income type area. It's filled with college students. Um, college students either have, you know, no income or very little income. And so a lot of those areas were QOZ when in fact they are, you know, fairly active student housing development areas. So I think you saw an outsized level of investment around the country um, in either student or just kind of university adjacent type neighborhoods um so we actually did five different uh student housing projects um in the opportunity zone at, in the university of illinois uh, we did a multifamily project in lafayette indiana it's actually near purdue although this project was not uh student housing and not near campus necessarily um and then um those are kind of legacy projects here in the midwest and we've just begun um, our real expansion out westward in Colorado and Arizona. So between Colorado and Arizona, we have four Opportunity Zone projects, one of which 
is under construction right now in suburban Phoenix, 211 unit project called Solace at Ballpark Village in Goodyear, Arizona. We have another project in Scottsdale that's um, uh, working its way through entitlements right now. Uh, and then we have two projects in Colorado Springs, um, and uh, the, the first of which is one that is open for investment right now. That's Solace at Cimarron Hills. Phase one is 234 units, multifamily. Good. It looks like typically you're looking to raise somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 or 10 or $20 million of equity for each of these deals. Uh, how have you raised capital so far? Which channels have proven most successful for you? Yeah, so we, we've kind of early on, I guess, decided that we were going to take the approach of going deal by deal, project by project, and the way that we we're going to capitalize these. And I'd say that more commonly, at least at the beginning, was, was more of a commingled, larger commingled fund vehicle. Um, we found in, in just both in practice and just at least theoretically, that that was going to be a little bit more challenging just due to the timelines of when folks had realized the gain, had to, you know, had to capital, you know, had to put that money out the door and then our fund manager would then have to deploy that capital, kind of meet all those uh, timelines and deadlines for investors uh, to make it all work. Just, it can be done, obviously, and there are some very successful funds out there doing it. Um, I think that the number that were initially announced to, you know, who's still out there and who's had success, you know, there's a pretty wide um, disparity. Uh, there were a lot of funds out there at the, at the outset, and, and now uh, just a few have emerged that are, are really, really successful in aggregating a, a significant amount of capital and getting it deployed into good projects. Uh, so we've always taken a project by project, deal by deal approach, um, and then we raise an individual fund for that project. Uh, nomenclature is a little confusing and opportunities on funds because everything is a fund. So even if it's just one project, it's still a fund. Um, but those are all individual, and, and you're right, they're uh, they're anywhere from five to twenty million typically um, is the equity slug into a into the various project, and we've been syndicating those, um, and we've been syndicating them sort of internally through a network of investors, um, which has grown pretty significantly over the last few years as we've kind of emerged as one of the uh, more active developers of QoZ projects. So you know we tend to pull a few more. Folks into our into our gravity kind of over time, and um, and then the other kind of backstop to that and and, and other channel that we've had a lot of success with is uh, a company called CrowdStreet. Uh, CrowdStreet's a something uh, of a crowdfunding online marketplace, and um, we've had some some great success putting a couple of our projects up on that platform, and um, and raising. Uh, a lot of capital pretty quickly. I mean, the QOZ program is, is really attracted a lot of uh, non-real estate type investors because it can be a, a capital gain from from anything, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of folks, um, we've had a lot of folks that made a lot of money on Tesla stock. I, I've had a handful of investors, more than a handful now that, um, you know, have realized a lot of their gains through Bitcoin. I mean, um, just different, you know, vehicles altogether. Um, and, you know, a group like CrowdStreet is a good place, um, you know, to be able to deploy smaller amounts, $25,000, $50,000, put it into two, three, four, five projects, pick and choose uh, versus just putting it into a larger commingled fund. And um, uh, we found that they've got a great, a great access to, you know, small to medium size investors. Right. So 
what you guys are doing over at Jackson Dearborn Partners, instead of doing a large $100 million, let's say, multi-asset fund, you're doing one fund at a time, which makes it a little easier in many ways, both on you as the GP and then also on your LP investors as well. You have a series of single asset qualified opportunity funds, which you close regularly, as opposed to just one large open multi-asset fund. I think that makes it a little bit more palatable for, for many investors and may make a lot of the administrative work on you easier in some ways too. Uh, you were talking about CrowdStreet a little bit. Uh, I, I know you've got a, a fun story to share with us on on how quickly you were ra- able to raise capital on that platform. I'm curious to to hear your your memories of of that success you had on CrowdStreet. Yeah, I mean they've been a, CrowdStreet has been a great partner. Um, we've done two projects with them, um, both opportunity zone one one a student housing, one a multifamily project. Um, the way it works there is a, it's a webinar um, type model in which you put the property out, out of the marketplace, you do a, do a webinar, and then they open up for investment. And I think the first project we um, you know, it was full before the webinar was over. Um, in the second project, um, which was also Ballpark Village, I believe was filled out um, before I even uh, finished the introduction, I think three minutes. Was uh, was the amount of time we took to fill out that equity slug on that, which was which was really just tremendous demand um, for that project. Granted, that's the suburban Phoenix uh, was near the end of 2020. A lot of folks had year-end 2020 deadlines, and um, you know, so maybe the timing and, and the location and everything else was was really paramount. But um, it was uh, it was a fun ride to do that so quickly. I believe it was a crowd street record, and they've raised a lot of capital. So um, I think that's saying something. Yeah, that's that's pretty impressive. Anytime you're able to raise a few million dollars within a two or three minute period, that's incredible. Uh, well, tell us about your current project right now. You're working on the Solace at Cimarron Hills, which is in Colorado Springs. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing there, what type of project it is. And I'm also curious, uh, why Colorado Springs? Why are you bullish on that area of the country? We love the Colorado Springs market. We've actually got three projects in the pipeline in that in that particular market. Denver gets a lot of the um, a lot of the press and a lot of the attention, and for good reason. I mean, it's one of the best markets in the whole country for growth and underlying fundamentals. What we always loved about Colorado Springs is, um, you know, similarly, you know, high or even higher quality of life, uh, a little bit lower cost of living, very similar underlying fundamentals for demographic population growth job growth um, and just sort of a recipient of of continued immigration that is you know only kind of accelerated with with covid folks being able to work anywhere um, you, you know leave the west coast perhaps and, and live more affordably be skiing every couple of days and you know just have a really high quality of life and so it's a market that, that we love before that's it's only, I think, gotten stronger over the last year. Um, you know, we saw some good data recently. I mean, their their unemployment, employment rates are already back, um, you know, higher than and better than they were uh, prior to March of 2020. Uh, the rent growth has, has been maintained uh, and been really, really strong. Uh, I think I saw as the number four market in the country for rent growth in 2020. Um, it's tracking toward a million person MSA. Uh, just got a Southwest airline hub in the uh, in the market, and is one of those cities that's just you know on the in the top ten list of for various magazines and 
websites all the time for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, so we love that market. And, um, you know, this is a, uh, this is a site, um, that uh, we've been working on for over two years now. Um, it's, uh, 234 units in the first phase of a 342 unit total project. Uh, east side of Colorado Spring in the Powers Road corridor, which is the major commercial corridor for all of Colorado Springs. Every, you know, retailer under the sun is kind of up and down that particular corridor. We're also just north of Peterson Air Force Base and uh, where Amazon is building their largest facility in the whole country. I think the whole world, actually. It's like 4.3 million square feet. Um, and so a uh, great location, um, Powers and Galley Road, 234 units. I think the, you know, Jimmy had asked me kind of before we started this podcast, kind of what really sets a project like this part. And, you know, my answer is kind of like, you know, what? it's, it, it's the simplicity of this particular project. This is, this is multifamily. Um, it's garden style, three story walk up multifamily. Um, it's the third in our Solace branded theme. Um, it's, it, we've built this exact product type in other markets, uh, just like this. It's getting obviously different for Colorado Springs. Um, it, you know, we were using rent levels of a project across the street, uh, that they're getting right now. Um, it's just a very kind of down the middle multifamily project in an excellent growth market that also happens to be opportunity zone. And, um, you know, we're just, we're really excited about it. Um, and, and we've got a couple others in the pipeline, including one more that's uh, also opportunity zone that we can maybe, uh, you know, talk more about on a future podcast. That'd be great. I'd love to. Um, well, you guys have been doing this for a while, like we were talking about in the beginning of the episode today, you guys were one of the first funds that came to market in 2018 while the regs were still uh, not finalized yet even. And, you know, you've done, this is your eighth one of these you've done so far. So I'm, I'm curious to know, we already kind of picked up from you some best practices or lessons that you've learned along the way, but what have been your biggest opportunity zone challenges thus far? Anything that has been particularly challenging for you? Well, um, you know, every deal has its own challenges. I mean, that's that's just real estate and development. Um, I'd say, obviously, the last <laughs> the last year in in COVID, no matter which market or product type you're in, and we're fortunate in that we're we're largely in multifamily. Uh, our student housing has fared well. Uh, we're not in retail, office, hospitality. We don't have exposure in those markets, and we're also um, mainly focused in Colorado and Arizona, areas of the country that have fared um, very well during the pandemic. Um, obviously, certain parts of the country, uh, California, I mean, San Francisco, New York, I mean, there's um, obviously a lot of uh, more uh, more damage in, in those areas from a uh, rent standpoint, et cetera, et cetera, not to mention just a public health standpoint. But um, you know, so we're fortunate, but it, it's been really, it's still been really challenging. Uh, it's just hard to get uh, construction financing. Uh, it has been more challenging. Uh, lumber costs and, and just kind of weird type uh, construction costs have, have gone through the roof on, on certain things. We just, little supply chain shortages along the way. I remember last August when we had several projects opening all at once, we just, we couldn't get appliances. We just could not, I mean, we're you know, renting trucks to drive to other markets to go buy appliances at retail just to fill out because it was so, so challenging. So, you know, I mean, it, 
you know, COVID is, is sort of a, that's not really opportunity zone related challenge, but um, it has certainly been the biggest one over the last, over the last year. Other challenges just, I think, you know, the, the program is still so new that we're, we're consistently making sure we're up to date on our, on our paperwork and that, and our understanding of the program. And as we get to different phases of uh, the kind of, real estate cycle or spectrum of a deal, um, you know, how that's going to affect it, uh, you know, because it's somewhat uncharted waters, okay? We get the first project to a refinance point and to distribution points and things like that that just, there's not, not many have gotten there yet. Or they, they have, it's just been the last six, nine, 12 months. So, um, you know, tapping the resources that we have, um, law firms and, and CPAs and, and other OZ funds, um, which again, there are a handful out there that are really good and that, you know, we talk to and, you know, share our best practices and trials and tribulations. Um, and, you know, I recommend, you know, anybody that's going to get into this business or is already in this business, do as much of that as possible because we've, we've learned things and, and misunderstood things along the way that, um, uh, we could have probably, so. Yeah, that's there's some there's some good lessons you've learned and some good challenges that you've had for sure. And uh, yeah, Ryan, you're not joking about the the increase in the lumber cost. I was just doing a uh, small product in my backyard. I had to pick up some lumber from Home Depot a couple weeks ago, and I couldn't believe how much money it cost. I hadn't bought lumber in a while, and it was uh, much more expensive than I had anticipated. It was kind of amusing. I wasn't aware of that until it hit my own wallet. It's crazy. It's it absurd, honestly. Definitely is. Hey, any uh. Any trends you're keeping an eye on this year or beyond in regards to maybe not just only lumber, but uh, but beyond lumber, any any wider macroeconomic or microeconomic trends or OZ trends in particular that you're keeping an eye on? Well, I guess like all of us in our space, I mean, the, the big one is sort of the you know, the program itself. Um, what's it, what's it going to look like in you know 2022 and beyond? Um, you know, we expected the program to see some tweaks and some changes regardless of the uh, administration obviously the administration changed over here and uh, we expect those changes maybe to be a little bit more progressive than they might have otherwise but still we did expect some tweaks um so i think that's the biggest one is what uh, i think there'll be some additional reporting requirements uh, potentially some, a little more of a national sort of registration database component some of those would be you know, would be relatively welcome, honestly. Um, I, I think the program could be could be better um, and accomplish more of the goals that it set out to uh, with some tweaks. Uh, there's talk of more community benefits and some, uh, you know, partnerships with more um, local community type organizations, more affordable housing, things of that nature. Um, and all those, I believe, are probably on the table and we'll just have to kind of see what um, what changes are coming down and, uh, and adapt to them as necessary. Um, also, the census tracts themselves. Um, you know, the qualified census tracts that are in place today are, are likely going to change um, uh, at least a little bit and maybe a lot. Um, and again, some of that's probably, um, you know, accurate. I mean, it's probably the right thing. Um, there are some, some zones that are, probably shouldn't be um, and some that aren't that probably should. So, I think that's a big thing, and there's a lot of unknowns there. Um, hopefully, we'll have some guidance here, you know, earlier in 2021 and then later. But um, yeah, we'll see. I, again, imagine the administration's got a lot of 
priorities right now. I'm not sure where this one lies. Yeah, some really good things to keep an eye on there. Uh, two two huge things to keep an eye on in regards to opportunities on specifically, like you just mentioned, just to recap. One, any changes to the program itself and, and how to qualify as a fund, whether you may have to go through some sort of national registration or or something like that. More reporting may be required uh, throughout the life of the fund. And then uh, that second point you brought up, absolutely, the census tracts changing. Uh, when the 2020 census kind of gets reported and goes final, the geographic boundaries of the census tracts may change, one, and then two, a lot of the demographic data behind them will will change as well or get updated. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens on those two fronts. Absolutely, Ryan, I agree. Uh, well, Ryan, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and Jackson Dearborn Partners? Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate having me on, Jimmy. It's always great to, to talk to you and um, you know share a few thoughts on the space. Um, you know, been a listener of the podcast and will continue to do so. Um, yeah, please find us at uh, jacksondearborn.com, J-A-C-K-S-O-N-D-E-A-R-B-O-R-N.com, jacksondearborn.com. That's, um, you know, that's got all of our uh, current investment opportunities, our portfolio, obviously, about us and whatnot. Um, you can always reach out to me. My email is on there. Um, it is myself. I'm happy to talk to anyone that's interested in our space. If it's someone that's looking to invest, wonderful. Uh, we have opportunities for that. Uh, if you just want to, um, you know, shoot the bull or, uh, or, or swap stories about opportunity zones, I'm always happy to do that, too. So um, appreciate the time, Jimmy, and hopefully uh, some of the listeners will reach out. Excellent. That's jacksondearborn.com. And for our listeners out there today, I will, as always, have show notes for today's episode on the Opportunity Zones database website. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links to all of the resources that Ryan and I discussed on today's show. Ryan, again, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jimmy. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.